1: I'm Linda. Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings to your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It is Tuesday. It is March 22nd, the day after my birthday, and I don't always admit to my listeners when I am... Feeling a little under the weather from self and from being overserved, but since this was uh, part of the birthday bacchanalia provided by my wife, I will admit to you that I'm a little fuzzy-headed, um, and I'll tell you more about my birthday maybe another time. I am. Um, we're going to take a little break from Ukraine, um, although I'm sure it might come up in the context of various other things. Um, but you know, one of my duties here as the host of the Remnant is to bring you the the, the unstepped on pure Peruvian flake of wonkery. And, um, and so that's why I have, I think it's not official, but sort of the unofficial budget guy of the remnant. Uh, my old friend, Brian Riedel, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and he's got a new piece out in the, the latest national affairs, which I'm sure all of you on spring break are reading at the beach um it's uh presidents as economic managers.
0: uh brian welcome back to the room. glad to be here jonah thank you and, and happy belated birthday
1: thank you very much i appreciate it and happy birthday to your daughter who you told me was also born on march 21st basically the best day to be born. absolutely um in fact in the third of the of the omen movies um the uh the grown-up son of satan who was trying to make sure that The Messiah isn't born. Were they call the Nazarene? Um, I believe was born on March twenty-first. So you know, there you go.
0: My 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 kid does act like Satan sometimes, so it makes sense. No, no,
1: no. This would be the good guy. This would be this would be the Messiah. Oh well, that's that's surprising
0: for my daughter. Yeah, but that 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 is better.
1: Anyway, so uh, where to start? Let's just before we get into this president as this this thing about presidents as uh, economic managers. Um, why don't you just give us a quick lay of the land of, uh, sort of a fiscal report card? Where are we in this, this crazy world of, of, of tax and spending is, you know, is build back better dead or is it just as Miracle Max would say, mostly dead?
0: <laughs> it's, it's mostly dead. Um, and every time inflation rises, it becomes debtor because Joe Manchin is still, the de facto president of the United States and his main concern has been inflation. And he feels completely vindicated every time inflation goes up. So it looks like at least up until the election, which, the Demo- which may go bad for the Democrats, they're probably not going to get any big spending bills through. And so we've weathered the, the spending spree storm for a little while. The, the president is going to be looking for another big COVID package which is infuriating because we just spent $5 trillion fighting COVID. And they only put about $300 billion of that into healthcare. And now they're saying, well, we didn't spend enough on healthcare, so we need to do more because we spent all the money bailing out unions and doing relief checks and giving state governments bailout money for deficits that don't exist. So that's a little infuriating. But the other big budget note with the president's budget coming out next Monday is that he keeps bragging about the deficit falling a trillion dollars when the only reason it fell a trillion dollars was because the pandemic spending expired on schedule and Biden couldn't get all his new spending through to replace it. So he's, he's taking credit for something not only that he had nothing to do with, but a development that he actively tried to sabotage. So
1: that's, that's the two cynical developments. There's some of that going around, though. I mean, in fair, I mean like it's, it's infuriating, about it, but there's Republicans taking credit for stuff in various spending packages that they voted against too, right? I mean, yeah, like... this is the,
0: this is the game they play at the same time. You know, Biden had portrayed himself as this, this moderate truth teller following up Trump and on policy, he's kind of coming up with more and more bizarre statements like build back better will cost nothing. And it's not the same kind of dishonesty we saw from Trump. It, this is more of like a narrow policy dishonesty, but it's still, it's still very odd and awkward.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And and, you know, the You know, my standard sort of line about like when people compare things to Hitler is like, you know, you can you can come well short of Hitler and still be bad, right? You know, <laughs> right. Um, like that shouldn't be like the threshold exactly. between good and bad. And I'm not saying Trump was Hitler or anything like that. I'm just saying that like it one of the real problems that we've got in a sort of our political discourse is that Trump so enraged, so many members of the left and the mainstream media, and obviously I'm not a huge fan either, that it gives everybody this whataboutist permission structure to say, well, he's not as dishonest as Trump was. And it's like, you can fall kind of short, far from being as dishonest as Trump was about various things and still be just indefensibly dishonest, right? And and it's kind of a binary, either you're honest or you're dishonest. and And Biden, you know, the whole... Build Back Better suddenly became an anti-inflation, you know, Bill, like as if it was designed from the beginning to fight inflation, even though like they when they were putting it together, they said inflation wasn't a problem. And it's like that kind of stuff you just make. It, it, it's infuriating because it just treats everybody like they're stupid. Right. It's a floor cleaner and a dessert um, <laughs> is topping. There, is there
0: nothing that Build Back Better can't do? It's amazing that after the fact. It suddenly became an anti-inflation bill, even though it was written before inflation even, even really happened. But it just miraculously was the perfect tonic for that, too. Uh, there aren't a lot of economists who will tell you that a four to $5 trillion spending bill is the cure for inflation. Um, but, you know, they basically just had to keep pushing it any way they could. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I agree with your point that... Um, you know, not as dishonest as Trump isn't necessarily the standard. <laughs> the whole point that Democrats ran on is that we're better than Trump. We're going to be, we're going to bring back normalcy. We're not going to be like Trump. And now they want to be held to the same standard as Trump in a lot of areas and say, well, look how well we're doing. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, uh, So where, where will the debt and deficit, you I know, mean, where will all that stuff that we're, you know, the, the, the debt clock kind of, We're doomed numbers. Where are they going to be at the end of this when the numbers are, the numbers aren't final yet for, it's not the calendar year, right? There's a, there's a fiscal year that's different.
0: Right. Yeah. We're in the middle of the year right now. Well, we had a $3 trillion. Well, the deficit went from one to $3 trillion during COVID It was 1 trillion the year before it went to 3 trillion. Last year it fell to about 2.3 and this year it's looking to be closer to 1.5. So it's dropping from the peak, but it's still like five hundred billion dollars higher than it was before before COVID, which is the proper way of measuring And Of course, it's not going to be as bad as the peak of COVID, but you're still looking at about five hundred billion dollars higher, and you know it's going to stay above the trillion dollar level indefinitely. And if interest rates start rising like we're seeing right now, you know we could end up closer again to one and a half to two trillion dollar deficits by the end of the decade. My scary number that I've that I've been been circulating is that the debt held by the public was 17 trillion before the pandemic and depending on what Biden gets through it'll be between 40 and 45 trillion dollars a decade from now so you're looking at a debt that goes from 17 trillion to 40 or 45 trillion dollars between 2019 and 2031 so the numbers are kind of monopoly money they're too big to even imagine but that's 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 how bad things are right now
1: when you said held, say "held by the public," you mean state, local, and federal, or do you mean private citizens? Or? No,
0: I. There's two numbers for the national debt right now. There's people hear the 30 trillion dollar debt, but that includes six trillion in what's called intergovernmental debt, which is like the Social Security trust fund. Economists don't really count the Social Security trust fund as real debt because it was never actually borrowed from the public. It's more of just an accounting ledger. So economists will say that the real debt right now is about 23 trillion because that's the amount that was truly borrowed. That's called the debt held by the public as opposed to the debt borrowed from social security, which isn't really borrowing.
1: So last thing before we get back, get to your national affairs piece. Um, um, listeners of this podcast know that I do not like talking about monetary policy because I have close friends on both sides of it. Of these questions and um, um, I, it's like it's like having it's like a Jewish guy being in the middle of a fight between two Christians about the Nicene Creed I don't it just makes me nervous I don't know you know which side to take everyone sounds persuasive uh, Dave Bonson had me pretty convinced for a while that you know the, and I still think the deflationary thing is coming but um, I am now of the view that inflation is sort of like a run on a bank Um, it doesn't really matter what causes the psychology of the run on the bank. The fact is that once you have a run on the bank, even rational actors will behave it's quote unquote irrationally, because if you're it's like in DC, every time it snows, as you know, this city freaks out. And like my wife's from Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm from New York. I don't freak, I don't I don't think I need to stock up on canned goods every time it snows. But um, the fact that everybody else does. Migs like so like all of a sudden we're like well we better go to the store too to get sure we have toilet paper because they could just they, they could sell out of toilet paper or whatever it is and so it, you act like the thing that other people are afraid of you still act the same way and I, I feel that way sort of about inflation is that once inflation gets started the psychology of, of inflation takes off independently as an emergent property from the causes of it so you have it whatever the causes originally were where do you come down are, do you think that that the inflation is a temporary thing supply chain thing do you think it is a do you think it was caused by the overspending do you think the overspending made it worse what what is your story about the inflation that we're going
0: through? i think a couple things i mean supply chains are a part of it of course especially from asia's raising prices because we have fewer goods coming in you have more people wanting to buy these goods and fewer of them are coming in but you also had a Federal Reserve that basically printed three trillion dollars during the pandemic, uh, and then a, a federal government that went on a massive spending spree uh, with a lot of that money. You know, particularly the American Rescue Plan. A year ago, we had a four hundred billion dollar output gap. That means that's how short we were from where the economy should be performing, and they shot a one point nine trillion dollar bill. Or 1.9 trillion dollar bazooka into a 400 billion dollar output gap. When that happens, you can only raise output by 400 billion, and the other 1.5 trillion dollars is just inflation. So, when you have supply chains, a Fed throwing three trillion dollars in new printing into the economy, and Congress passing crazy spending bills, you're going to get inflation. And as you said, it takes a, it takes on a life of its own because you get a wage and price spiral. Prices surge. Workers demand their raises to keep pace, which then causes businesses to raise prices again. And everyone and businesses and workers are each demanding higher prices and wages to balance each other off. And that's why it's really important for the Federal Reserve to not just, you know, raising interest rates by a quarter point is a small step. But what the Federal Reserve is doing is and they need to warn markets that we're going to keep doing this until inflation stops. And the purpose then is to lower expectations. If pe- if businesses and workers believe that inflation will be lower in a year or two because the Federal Reserve is going to make it so by any tool necessary, they'll stop preemptively raising prices and pushing the wage increases. And that itself, the lower inflation expectations will bring lower inflation. But this is, I mean... It's not going to happen immediately, and I think we're in for at least, you know, possibly another year or two, and it's going to be a bumpy ride because the way we're going to break this is, prop, you know, with with higher interest rates, less economic activity, hopefully not a recession.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then there's these other exogenous things like, you know, uh, oil markets are all messed up, right? Yeah. and and that's going to be a driver of higher prices no matter what. And I've been reading up on the 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 wheat problem um, coming because of we don't obviously we don't get a lot of wheat from Ukraine or Russia but like the Middle East gets a and, and a lot of Africa gets huge amounts of it um, and they also get a huge amount of their fertilizer so if you use less some might use less fertilizer um, which will lower yields others just may import the wheat but the wheat's not going to be there at least not in the same rate and so like you have bread prices go up. And meanwhile, I don't know if you knew this, but like, I didn't know this. Egypt has a bread subsidy that you can, it's been a price. You can get like 20 loaves of bread for an Egyptian pound and the Egyptian pound hasn't changed. It's uh, like the price hasn't changed in like 30 years. When they first started it like 30 years ago, the pound was worth basically a buck now it's worth like six cents. You can get 20 loaves of bread for six cents um and they've been trying to get rid of these things for years but the last time they tried there were huge bread riots so you can see weird instability stuff in the middle east and elsewhere that also is going to have inflationary effects so you know buy gold um (laughs) so uh uh let's turn to your piece uh yeah there's a really interesting good piece in uh national affairs uh addressing this different aspects of this thing that drives me crazy about how we a lot credit or blame for the economy to specific presidents or specific parties. Why don't you just sort of walk us through the, the thesis and then we'll get at it.
0: If any of you have been ever been on Twitter or Facebook, um, you have seen the memes and the explanations. Democrats do better on the economy than Republicans. Um, we, you know We create more jobs under Democratic presidents than Republican presidents or you see the more famous 10 of the past 11 recessions have begun under Republican presidents. That can't be a coincidence, they will tell you. Democratic presidents are better on the economy because they bring job gains and Republican presidents bring recessions. That's the argument. What I did in my my article in National Affairs was I actually went through and examined, is, is it really Republicans and Democrats and what's happening here? And one of the points I wanna make is, You know, it's a small data set. When people say these correlations, you're just looking at a few presidents. And, you know, what I mentioned is if you want silly correlations, you know, over the last 125 years, there's been a correlation between short-term stock market performance and the position of Mars in the sky. There's also been a correlation between the number of accidental, accidental drownings in swimming pools and the number of annual movies Nicolas Cage appears in. Obviously, those two aren't linked.
1: And my favorite, well, 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 obviously we'll, we'll just put a pin in those and we'll, we'll get to the causation on that. stuff later. <laughs> My, my favorite example is
0: in the last 150 years, 97% of America's war dead have occurred in four wars that generally were began or escalated under democratic presidents, world war one, world war two, Korea and Vietnam, 90% of all war dead. Now we don't, see memes saying Democrats cause war dead and don't elect a democratic president because Americans will die in wars because it's just an odd correlation. So I went through the 11, I went through the job gains in the 11 recessions. And what I learned is that we get the correlation and the causation reversed. The president doesn't drive the business cycle. The business cycle drives who we elect president. And, I, you know, I, I can I can keep going on this, but you feel mm-hmm. free to. No, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, explain this point for a second, because I think sure. it's an interesting point. Let's take a look at at since 1980. There's two points to understand. The first is. The number one factor determining a president's record on jobs is the economy you inherit. And it's and it's this is kind of ironic. You inherit a spot on the business cycle when you become president. If you get elected during a boom, there is an 83% chance you will have a recession during, during your term. If you inherit a recession, you actually will probably do well and create more jobs because if you get elected president during a recession, you get to ride the economy upward. If you get elected during a boom, you are often elected when the economy is going down. And so overall, presidents elected during recessions create three times as many jobs as presidents elected during booms. So the presidents who have the good job records are the ones who take over at the bottom. How does this relate to Republicans and Democrats? It turns out that from 1980s Reagan election onward, we keep electing Republican presidents during booms and Democratic presidents during recessions. The last three Democratic presidents have taken office after the 1992 recession, uh, the 2008 recession, and the 2020 recession. So Clinton, Obama, and Biden all took over at the bottom of the business cycle and basically rode the economic recovery up. And then at the end of their terms, when the economy was booming, at the end of their eight years, when we had open seats, the last three times we had open seats during booms, we elected Republicans. 1992, 2008, and 2020. So essentially what we're doing is if you keep electing a Republican every time there's a boom and electing a Democrat every time there's a recession, then by definition, a Republican will be in office when a recession hits. Because you just keep electing Republicans until the next recession hits. So the business cycle is driving the politics, not vice versa.
1: So, uh, look, I mean, obviously I find this, you know, on its face fairly persuasive. And I think there's probably a lot of, I think it's probably right to one extent or another, but don't you have the same causation correlation problems from your for your theory? You know, you have the same small sample, right? That Democrats, you know, the, the Democrats have for their correlation theories, right? I mean, it's a small sample is a small sample. Why are you more confident in your explanation of the causation than, than, than theirs?
0: It's a small sample, but it's, it's a pattern. I mean, it's, this is, there is a pattern here that's actually economically predictable. I mean, economists, there, there, there's full decades of economic theory and economic practice from country to country to country that will show you the business cycle. It will show you that if you, are, if you take office at the top of the business cycle, things will probably get worse. And if you take office at the bottom of the business cycle, things will probably get better. That is backed up by not just these presidents, but you can see that in other countries and other economies at other times. There is the the business cycle angle is airtight um, in terms of of broad economic theory. The fact that we just keep electing Republicans simply um, at the top of the business cycle and Democrats at the bottom is just the application of, of that reality. And so I think I think it's it's not just kind of random, I think. And if you look at the recessions themselves, it's really hard to, to, to say that these recessions were really driven by policies. Um, George Bush did not cause the housing crash. Um, you know, Donald Trump did not create the pandemic. You know, you actually look at what's happening. Those who want to blame it on Republican recessions have an even harder time explaining What policy by that president actually caused that recession?
1: They really don't have one. They just have a correlation. So then there's this other, and I know you haven't answered this, but there's this other problem, which is the very assumption that presidents of either party run the economy, which is my great peeve, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a little kid and you go to the playground and there's the rocket ship slide and it's got the, the steering wheel that you think turns you're like you're actually not doing anything. Right. I mean, like the president, I'm not saying the president doesn't have any power, obviously he has power, but this idea that he has precision controls over the economy. um, And that if you just get all the knobs, right, you can manage the economy. If, if that were true, we would have perfect economies all of the time, but it just, it's this thing that is a lazy, lazy sort of cliched way of talking that the the media and and politicians like to perpetuate, and it just it's it's just not true.
0: Yeah, I mean right? the, the U.S. economy is three hundred and thirty million people, you know, buying and selling and creating twenty one trillion dollars worth of, of goods every year, and that itself is part of a global economy of of. You know, 7 billion people and about 80 trillion dollars. The economy for the most part runs itself. And the extent that which politicians can change it is very marginal. The Federal Reserve can have an effect um, with interest rates. A lot of what we the presidents can do, taxes, spending, regulation, those, those are often going to have marginal effects, particularly in the short term. In the long term, you can create conditions for more or less growth over a, a, a multi-decade period with the right policies. But it's really hard for a president to really move the business cycle up and down. And I and I'm, I, I agree with you. I, I get frustrated every time we elect a Democrat during a recession and the recession ends and the president is hailed as a miracle worker. Well, all recessions end. This, this, is, this is the business cycle. Um, right. You know, but but this is, this is a cycle. I mean, Barack Obama, we had the, we had one of the weakest recoveries ever coming out of the 2008 recession. And yet Barack Obama is still hailed by many as a miracle worker because the great recession ended. It was, it would, it would have taken a heroic act of effort to not have the recession end. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it, yes, it ended. Um, but that's kind of the point. One of the points I make in my, in my article is presidents, again, a president's job record is based as much on what they inherit as anything they do. If you, if you take office with a high unemployment rate, you're going to create about seven and a half million jobs over the next four years, regardless of what you do. Um, if you take office with a low unemployment rate, you have about an 80% chance of having a recession,
1: regardless of what you do. There's just not that much a president can do in the short term. Yeah, no, and, and this is a controversial point we don't need to get in i don't want to blindside you with but you know when you say it would take a heroic effort for the recession not to end there is a school of thought that i am very sympathetic to that says that's exactly what fdr did <laughs> yes. That the reason yes. why you know the, de- the 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 depression that he inherited be he he's the one who made it the great depression with all of the interventions and you had you had others very serious very steep depressions that were very short lived because the government did nothing and the, the liquidation ran through the system and the govern and the business cycle started up again. And instead you had basically it took world war two. I mean, this is the, one of the great keys I have is that people talk about how the new deal ended the great depression, but, but actual historian, no historian actually really argues that um, the great depression was still going until the end of world war two. And, um. Um. And so, like all of that New Deal stuff, really just kind of like extend, you know, w- slowed the pulling off of the band aid, and and yet that is a large part I would argue where we get this myth that presidents run the economy, and the irony is, is that that myth is based on a guy running the economy badly.
0: Yeah, I mean, barely anyone remembers that we basically had a short depression in 1920. And almost nobody remembers it because we didn't do a big new deal and the economy recovered on its own so quickly that we forgot about it. Uh, FDR, you're exactly right. I mean, we had a 13 or I'm sorry, we had about 19 1929 to really 1932 and then all the way to, to World War II in 1941. We had the New Deal continually not improving the economy and in many ways is making it worse. You also had the Federal Reserve at that point uh, with restrictive monetary policy. Every time the economy started to improve, the Federal Reserve would do restrictive monetary policy and put it right back. And this is, this is one of the angles in my article. As I say, if we actually measure presidents within their spot on the business cycle, you get very different results by that standard. FDR was a disaster because we didn't recover like we should have. By that standard, the outliers, for instance, in my report, are Obama's first term was an outlier because it was, it, we should have recovered even more, uh, even faster from where we were. Another outlier was Bill Clinton's second term because he actually overperformed his spot on the business cycle when we had a very roaring late 90s economy even though we weren't in a we had a we had a, a mature economy that was still roaring rather than slowing down, if if you measure with by the business cycle standard, you get totally different takes on what presidents oversaw growing or or, or bad economies. FDR probably comes
1: out the worst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean the the '90s stuff was in part again to underscore the point had very little to do with Bill Clinton. I mean, look, I mean, there some things the deficit reduction stuff was good. There's some other things that you know they did that were good, or at least de- defensible, but like a big chunk of it was these massive increases in productivity that we got from automation and the and really bringing computers online, not in an internet sense, but in a production sense um, that were kind of like one-offs. I mean, I know Al Gore invented the internet, but like it's um, it's just a more complicated story. Um, so. But so isn't the problem here, though, that like we're both going to be in violent agreement that presidents don't really run the economy and that and that this partisan point scoring is kind of silly and all due deference to national affairs and to your brilliant pros. We're not going to convince anybody. <laughs> and we're going to keep doing this every time we get a new president. Every time someone runs, they're going to say, I have a plan for the economy. People are going to take it seriously. If it go if, if the economy happens to do well, people are going to credit the plan. If it goes poorly, they're going to say the plan failed. You know, it's we're sort of stuck with this understanding of the presidency that um is sort of intellectually unjustifiable.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is the brand of politics. They may as well pack up and go home if they can't take credit for economic growth or torch the other party when we get a recession. This is what they do. And so we're not going to convince anybody. I mean, I will say I, I write I write these articles as much as therapy um, to get it off my chest <laughs> um, as I do under the belief it's actually going to matter in the debate. We're still going to see the memes. One interesting angle, though, is this these this is basically almost an accident right now of the Republicans getting elected at the top and the Democrats getting elected at the bottom. This could reverse. and And what I mean by that is Let's say President Biden oversees a double dip recession. Let's say the economy does poorly. We get a double dip. Inflation doesn't grow. We don't get a recovery. You could get a Republican elected in 2024, right when the economy is naturally about to take off. In which case, you start a cycle of uh, you know again of 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 the Republican getting credit for the growth, and then who knows if at that point at the end of eight years you replace him with a Democrat at the top of the business cycle. You know, ultimately, that's what happened. You know, President Reagan was elected in 1980 when the economy was in a recession. He was the last president, uh, last Republican president who took office during a recession. And Reagan is still lionized as a great job creator. And I think Reagan did a lot of great things. But part of the reason Reagan was a great job creator is he was the last Republican president who took office at the bottom of a business cycle. In 2024, if Biden can't fix inflation, we may get another Republican take office at the bottom of the business cycle for the first time since 1980, and then you'll start to see the cycle. For all we know, could reverse in terms of which party is getting elected at the bottom and the top.
1: Now, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to Reagan, um, you know, I mean, he was willing to endure a really terrible recession um, that he made. Well, he essentially made. I mean, again, it was the Fed, but you know, he put, it let Volcker run crazy with the interest rate stuff. And, um, that in itself as a sort of, I mean, it's, it's weird. I take your point about the business cycle, but he was willing to take a political hit to let the business cycle do its thing essentially. And let the reset in, in order to get the recession, to kill inflation. And that's something a lot of other politicians, I mean, you don't, You don't get the sense that Biden has that in him.
0: Yeah, I mean, Reagan could have continued along a lot like Biden today with high inflation and sluggish growth, but not necessarily a recession. And Reagan wasn't satisfied with sluggish growth and high inflation. He was actually, with Volcker, willing to put the economy into a recession in order to break the back of inflation and get a legitimate boom and so that was a policy choice It, it that, that gave him the faster growth. Um, we would have, I mean, we, we would have eventually stayed out of it, stayed out of the recession anyway, but that helped. And that's the question Biden faces today and may, and may face with the Federal Reserve is how, if they're willing to go that far again. Now, granted, inflation isn't as high now as it was back then. People don't remember back then you had interest right. rates of 20, 21 percent. You had inflation up into the teens. It was a very different environment. People had been suffering for a decade. And so we're not there yet. But at a certain point, though, you still face that trade-off where if Biden and the Federal Reserve really want to pull down inflation, you kind of want you kind of may have to put the economy a bit into a recession. And if that happens, you want to do it like Reagan, where you get the recession out of the way early in your term so that four years later. You're running for re-election with mourning in America rather than people are still suffering.
1: This is an interesting question. Let's say, you know, all the um, disclaimers are that presidents don't actually run the economy, notwithstanding. Let's say in some sort of like the movie Dave or something like that, that uh, you... Have you know like that you get drafted into the administration and you get to be um, Biden's brain on the economy? What do you tell him to do in the next twelve months
0: on the economy?
1: Yeah, like he'll actually listen to you, said so you'll oh, get the credit oh my or gosh, blame. He'll listen to me.
0: Couple <laughs> things. First, first I tell him stop the spending. Build Back Better is dead. In fact, even possibly rescind a bit bits of it that that we can do that haven't been spent yet uh, from the American Rescue Plan. Second thing I, I tell him to do, if you really are concerned with inflation, drop some of the tariffs. I, I know politically, this is something that's almost become a bipartisan consensus in favor of tariffs. But par, you know, if if we can, if we can marginally reduce prices a little bit by pulling back some of the significant tariffs, not only by President Trump but those before him, you can reduce prices that uh, uh, a little bit that way. Uh, more more domestic oil drilling, more oil permits. It's not going to reduce prices immediately because it takes a while to drill oil, but do as much as you can drilling domestically with oil and let the Federal Reserve do what it's going to do. Um, I would love to, I'd love to have a, a good recommendation on supply chains. Uh, Scott Linscombe is probably the best person on, on how to fix supply chains, but I don't, I don't have a great answer. I know other than keeping the ports open 24 hours a day and on the west coast like they're doing right now
1: and repealing the jones repeal, act yeah, you re- have to repeal have the have to jones say, act repeal...
0: keep the ports open pull you know pull back the tariffs and and again from the federal standpoint do no harm which is you know tariffs and federal spending are making things worse do no harm stop blocking um you know drilling get as much as we can from canada you know tr- try to keep try to keep energy markets going
1: this is not either of our specialty but I I seem to recall an argument about the oil thing that, as I used to write a lot about oil stuff um, and energy stuff, and I seem to recall part of the argument, you know, you're saying how it takes a while to get this stuff online, and of course it does, right?
0: You used to take vacations in Anwar, right? That's
1: right. I did a, uh, I did a, my first big cover story for National Review was I remember. a trip up to Anwar. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: All I remember, the main thing I remember from that article was, was, you ta- you, was it you writing about all the flies or the bugs that you saw? Y-
1: yes yeah so like uh Anwar uh the that the 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 north slope is one of the few places in the world that scientists consider to be both a desert and a wetland um and it's because they actually get remarkably little precipitation but uh but it's, it all becomes ice, and then in the summer, when it melts, it is like forget Wisconsin being a land of ten thousand lakes it is the land of a hundred million puddles that are all perfectly designed for mosquitoes. And also these things called nose bots, which harass the caribou horribly. And, um, so when you go up there, like lots of dudes are wearing the full African queen, you know, beekeeper outfit kind of thing. And, um, it's, it's, um, it's not good. It's not good. Um, but, um, uh that's not to say that the whole north slope is not good. It's just like the place where they'd actually do the oil drilling is not this pristine lovely beautiful wilderness. It's a giant friggin' bog. Um you know the Brooks Range are beautiful. There's lots of nice stuff up there. My wife's from Alaska. I have to that that disclaimer. Anyway, um but part of my understanding about the the you know the one of the rebuttals to the well it takes a long time to get energy online is that if You give commodity markets the predictability that they know at some point in some defined time period out, 12, 18 months, 24 months, whatever it is, that the price is going to go down, it has a um, suppressing effect on price increases, right? Because you... It's about getting caught on the wrong side of long, you know, um, bets and that kind of stuff. Um, Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure there is, there are people who will argue that there is a feedback loop thing that even if it's not affecting production for the daily price squeeze, it does in terms of the sort of the commodity pricing over the long haul have a dampening effect on price hikes. But maybe I'm completely wrong, and if I am, I am someone in the comments will explain it to me.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you're right. Oil futures, energy futures markets—you know—future pricing, I think, is impacted by expectations of more coming on. I think that may be overstated. I don't uh, by by some people who, who talk about this. I, you're not going to. It's not going to fully drive. I think a, a big increase, and it may be a small enough chain or big drop, and it may be a small enough chain that it's kind of kind of overwhelmed by other factors and energy prices. I think there's a marginal effect. The reason I always bring up that it's not going to collapse prices tomorrow is we have to manage expectations. I think that there's you know I just I see on social media a lot of expectations that if if the president approves some some oil drilling permits that the price of gas will drop a buck by the end of the week and I think it's just it's important to manage expectations. You might see some slight changes in in futures markets and expectations but you're not going to your gas gas ain't coming back down to th- three dollars next week because of drilling, which is not to say we shouldn't do it. If we had had the foresight five or 10 years ago on this stuff, we'd be less of a mess right now, obviously.
1: Also, I mean and again, maybe this is just my hangover talking, but um you know, part of the argument that Bonson that my friend David Bonson made to me about the about whether that the inflation thing was overblown, um, which I now think is I should have him back so we can, read, we can discuss it further. I don't want to say he's wrong. Um, I'm, I'm just say I'm less persuaded than I was. Um, but uh, you know, part of his argument is about the velocity of money, that there's too few places to productively put capital right now because there's so much excess capital and so few good investments. If you signal to the markets that investing in domestic energy production, there was going to be a profitable return on investment, you would actually get some of that money invested in in out of you know off the balance sheets out of out of that, the bank you know vaults and into the economy going again, which has its own sort of benefit as well. Um, so, so that's what you would tell him to do. I think we can both agree that he's not going to listen to you. So, um, what do you think he's going to do? Do you think he's just going to stay the course with with this stuff, um, and and so like, what's your long term or short medium term bet on where the economy goes? I think the economy is
0: going to muddle along.
1: I think this summer
0: is going to get is going to be difficult for the economy, and I think it's because the war in Ukraine is going to start to grind down certain parts of the global economy. You mentioned wheat prices, uh, oil markets, uh, are, you know, energy markets. It's, right now, it's, it's not as big of a deal. But again, once, once the wheat harvests are expected, once the, the, the less Russian energy starts to hit certain parts, I would expect the economy to slow down somewhat and actually drive a little bit of instability and perhaps some inflation by summer and the end of the year. At the same time, inflation is going to take a while to tame. Supply chains are going to take a while. The Federal Reserve, I mean, they just raised interest rates to about 0.25 to 0.5 and said that they're going to try to get it to 2.75 by the end of 2023. But this this rate, the Fed funds rate, was 5% uh, 15 years ago. So, I mean, the Federal Reserve isn't exactly being that aggressive. You know, even by the time they're done in two years raising interest rates, it's still going to be only half of what it was 15 years ago, which is to say, I wouldn't expect inflation to be broken in the next six months uh, or the the next year. You're going to have a little bit of instability, I think, with global markets related to the war. And in terms of the political response, there's not much I'm expecting from the White House. Other than well, a lot of political messaging that don't don't blame me for inflation, don't blame me for the economy. This was all caused by the war in Ukraine, which I I think is exaggerated given what we saw before the war. And I think the closer we get to the election, we're going to start getting some really stupid proposals um, by nervous politicians. Of you know, we've already seen reports of giving every American a gas card. Uh, of like a $100 gas card to manage the price or to manage that the price increases or another round of tax rebates or all sorts of kind of gimmicky political ideas to, to take the pain away. Because again, the Democrats are heading for an election that's going to be pretty ugly. Republicans smell blood in the water and we're going to get some sort of the economy is poor who can pander the most between now and November. None of which is actually going to drive the prob- uh, solve the problem. And in fact, some of it may make it worse. So I, I think we're going to muddle through economically with a really stupid political season coming.
1: Speaking of stupid political season, uh, as you're probably aware, Rick Scott has gone off, went off reservation, the senator, um, and put out his own economic plan uh that mitch mcconnell basically had to, yelled at him like he had just pooped on the living room carpet right it was just like this is not what we're going to do we're not we this is not what we're talking about we we have and you know and in, in a sense i have some respect for rick scott on this even though he can drive me crazy because he has a point about like first of all about income taxes but second of all he has a point about actually having an agenda to run on to say, this is what we're going to do, even though Mitch McConnell has a point that it was really stupid politics. So I was wondering, where do you come down on both what Rick Scott was trying to do and whether or not it was uh, smart or dumb?
0: Yeah, I, I respect what he was doing. I think he said, we need to run with a positive agenda. Uh, we don't just want to run on, stop the Democrats contract with America kind of thing. Now, politically, people will say when the other party's in control and they're setting themselves on fire, don't take any incoming fire, get out of the way, let them self-immolate. I still respect the idea of coming out with a positive agenda. I think you owe it to voters just for democracy, for them to know what they're voting for. And frankly, the GOP needs an agenda because of I'll I'll, to be honest. If the GOP does take Congress in November, I don't have the foggiest idea what the what their agenda is. I don't really even know what the Republican Party stands for anymore on most issues. That being said, they're against canceling
1: Dr. Seuss. I just want to be clear. They're
0: against canceling. Yes, yes. Are we going to get you know a lot a lot of Dr. Seuss? That being said, the best comment I heard describing his plan was by I think was by my friend George Callis that said. It looked like he just aggregated the comment and, su- and suggestions box at a CPAC convention. <laughs> because it's just a it, the, the full list is just, it's just a bunch of random gimmicks, a lot of which are from 1992. I mean, my, the first item on the list of his agenda, item 1A, is bringing back prayer in public schools and saluting the flag in public schools. Now, Jonah, you and I are old enough to remember these debates from the 80s, the early 90s, the 92 Houston Convention for the GOP. I don't consider that item 1A for Republicans in 2022. And so you just kind of have these really, there's all sorts of retreads from 20, 30 years ago. From the budget perspective, the thing that got McConnell so mad is really the only thing Scott, Scott said on taxes was to raise taxes on lower-income individuals. He said, everybody needs skin in the game. Everybody should be paying income taxes. The bottom half pays no income tax. They pay payroll tax, but they should be paying income tax too. People can argue the merits of that points from a philosophical perspective, but heading into an election, raise taxes on the poor is probably not the the message you want to lead with. And then just on budget, He promised to not only balance the budget, but to actually pay down the national debt. Yet the only proposals on how to do that were to eliminate the Department of Education and cut the number of bureaucratic jobs. Now, again, cutting, eliminating the Department of Education. I can make all sorts of philosophical arguments and arguments about Reagan ran on it, baby. But. It's not going to you're not going to win a lot of moderate swing voters on that. If that if right. that's your lead budget plan is to eliminate the Department of Education, you're probably for whatever it's, its merits, I can argue, not the best messaging. And, you know, to balance the budget and start paying down debt would require eliminating 40 percent of the government um, within a decade as projected. And all he said was Department of Education and, and federal bureaucrats which just made it look unserious. It made it look like there was no real analysis beyond this, that it was just kind of a series of kind of half-assed gimmicks. And so, you in, in that way, I, I respect the effort, but boy, was this a bad plan. There was nothing on healthcare. There was nothing on energy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, it, 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 it has the feel of, if not necessarily a CPAC thing, because there are some young people at CPAC It's, it's sort of like the, 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 you know, the, a sub, a CPAC planning group at, at the villages in Florida, (laughs) right? You know, because it's, it's like these people were nostalgic for the Reagan agenda um, as seen through the sort of Vaseline lens of a streaming Fox nation thing where it looks like, you know, we're going to bring back saluting and, you know, and, 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 the pledge of allegiance stuff it's anyway, i it, know it so kids, kids are gonna they're gonna cut their hair they're gonna respect their mom and dad <laughs> <laughs> um uh so in fairness to equal time uh since we talked about dumb things on the right um it felt like we were just on the cusp of modern monetary theory getting a strange new respect, right? Uh, And then inflation came, and all of a sudden, it seems like a lot of people um, are forgetting that they were like all in on MMT. Um, But I don't pay... uh, This is just my impression basically from Twitter. Um, um, I don't follow the MMT debates on a daily basis anymore. Where does all that stand? And why don't you explain for listeners who don't know what magical monetary theory is? (laughs)
0: <laughs> modern modern monetary theory mmt is it's it's very trendy in social media and with three or four economists 99 percent of economists completely dismiss it and it pretty much says that we can just fund any sort of government spending we want with the printing press and it won't cause inflation i mean you could just throw in trillions of dollars for new government programs every year and you won't get inflation because we'll, we'll make it up in productivity instead of more mo- too much money chasing too few goods. The more money will create so many new goods that it won't be inflationary. And then they add, oh, but if there is ever inflation. Theoretically, you would just raise taxes through the roof to pull the money out. So throw so fiscal policy, instead of having a Federal Reserve do it, fiscal policy Taxes, government spenders would throw trillions of dollars into the economy through the printing press and all their government programs. And then if you get inflation, you tax it back out. Well, the first part that we can spend trillions without inflation has kind of fallen apart. We, we just we got right. huge inflation right now. They said they said this level of inflation was basically impossible under current conditions, that inflation would never happen. So in that way, they have some egg on their face. Now, don't read the New York Times article where that they just said MMT is taking a victory lap right now, which was baffling. Um, but the flip side of MMT supposedly is that when you do have inflation, Congress should reverse gears and raise taxes to pull it out. The funny thing is, MMT advocates are suddenly saying we shouldn't raise taxes now. That that we should look for other ideas. And this is exactly the political critique of MMT, which is that if you put Congress in charge of monetary policy, they're going to happily spend the money through the printing press for all the programs. But when the inflation comes and pe- the economy is teetering and people are nervous and their real wages aren't keeping up, there's no way in hell politicians are actually going to raise taxes in a fragile economy. And this is why central banks are independent all over the developed world, because politicians are never going to take away the punch bowl. And even the MMT advocates right now are saying, well, 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 we didn't really mean the raising taxes part because that would be painful for families. So really, in practice, MMT, we're seeing, again, has no answer to inflation. Their policies can help create it, and they're not willing to, even, even as economists, endorse the difficult decision then to pull it back
1: it's 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 a little anal, a little bit of an analog to the old keynesian stuff right like like all these people who'd say they're keynesians when it was time to spend and then you'd say well you know keynes also said that during boom times the government should build up a surplus and there's hey yeah, yeah, yeah nah, 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 nah. not that stuff you know we like the other keynesian stuff and it's sort of it's, it's the same moral hazard problem of relying on politicians to to do, like, I mean, like I'd, I'd be more open to the MMT argument if, if, or I shouldn't say that, I'm not open to the MMT argument, but I'd have more respect for these people if they were out there saying, we just have to re- hike taxes to punitive levels right now because it really matters, because that's what, if you buy, sort of getting back to where we began with the article, if you buy the idea that politicians can actually be technocratic, engineers of the economy then we would you should be you should expect politicians to do really unpopular things from time to time because that's what that's what what following the data and being an empiricist and a pragmatist would require and yet you never see it which tells you that like it's it's mostly marketing when people say talk about politicians being able to like run the economy
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they like to do the. It's just like Keynesianism. As you said, they like to do the popular stuff. They're not going to do the unpopular stuff. And I don't know how anyone can look at at Congress today, the, the parliament of pundits that that you as you say that they've become and say that these are the people we trust to fine tune the business cycle and to even make the unpopular decisions. Um, First off, Congress seems to want less and less power. They're deferring more and more to the Federal Reserve, to the executive branch, to regulators. But second, that's not even their focus right now. Madison Cawthorn brags about not even hiring a policy staff, just hiring comms people because that's all that matters. And MMT looks at this and says, let's give lawmakers more power over fine-tuning the specifics of the business cycle, setting aside the economic illiteracy of MMT the political naivete is is is, is quite remarkable, um, and so I, I think they're not having a very good uh, moment right now.
1: So, so, so you quoted me. I will remind listeners that you're the guy who first put this idea in my head about how so much of the support for massive spending, the Sanders agenda, and all this kind of stuff, it's all predicated on the polls that they suggest that they they cite. It's all predicated on this idea that other people will pay for it, and which is not a great. Metric of actual popular support. I am in favor of getting a Lamborghini if Brian Riedel will pay for it. Which does is the only real test is what you're willing to pay for it, right? And um, but I, 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 I bring this up is one to give you due credit, um, and also due credit for the fact that you could take all of the wealth of the one percent and it wouldn't cover half of Bernie Sanders' stuff. But I don't know if you saw this YouGov poll. It came out uh, last week. It's really so for listeners. I wrote about it in Friday's G file, but it's they they basically took an average of what American of American responses to where Amer to the percentage of the population w- that was made up by various groups. So, for example, uh, the average response of the number of transgender people in America was twenty one percent. Whereas in reality, it's one percent. Now I have all sorts of methodological quibbles about all, a lot of stuff and definitional quibbles, but even if you just take it directionally, it's pretty terrifying because that twenty one percent is an average, which means there are a bunch of people who thought the number of transgenders was much higher um, than twenty one percent. But the really interesting response for our purposes is uh, that twenty uh, percent that that Americans believe that the number of households that have an income of over a million dollars a year is uh, 20%. Like one out of five people, th- they think make a million dollars a year. When in reality, it's something like 0.1%. Um, and the, the number of households that, have, that make income over 500,000, the guess was it was 26% when the real number is like 1%. And so literally Americans think 40, nearly half of the economy, nearly half of the country is comprised of households that make over $500,000 a year. And it does give you a newfound sympathy for supporters of a lot of these things when y- you tell Americans that the rich will pay for it. Well, yeah, if you think half the country is making over half a million dollars a year. Um, it sounds kind of reasonable to think that the rich can pay for it all.
0: This is something I've looked into deeply. There is such a me- incorrect perception of how many rich people there are and how much they make. And we see this with, you know, Jeff Bezos could give every family a million dollars or Elon Musk. I mean, it's it's so it's so far from. Uh, true. It's it's the numbers are crazy. I mean, if you take just income, if you seized every dollar earned every year over the half five hundred thousand dollars, just let's say we're just every dollar earned above the five hundred thousand dollar threshold by every family, we're just going to seize it. And furthermore, we're going to assume these people keep working at hundred percent tax rates. Again, you wouldn't even balance the budget, much less pay for a penny of new spending. And, you know, you'd, you'd get about 4% of GDP. Well, we're looking at deficits headed towards 8%, 9%, 10% of GDP. But this is the myth, as, as you referenced, that rich people can pay it all. And it was, there was, a, it was a, a Vox poll a couple of years ago where they said two-thirds of Bernie supporters said they would not accept new taxes. For Bernie's agenda. That's two-thirds of his own people said they wouldn't. And, and so how, the only way to explain the disconnect is because they think millionaires can pay for it all. And my frustration is the politicians who come out there and say this. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders are constantly saying, we're going to make the millionaires pay. We're going to make the millionaires pay. There's a reason Europe funds its welfare states on broad-based payroll taxes and value-added taxes. Because there aren't enough millionaires in Europe or here to do it. And I can write these columns and put out the tables and the chart books till I'm blue in the face. And it doesn't it doesn't seem to get through uh, because people want to believe that there is just trillions of dollars just sitting there, you know, like Scrooge Scrooge McDuck's underground swimming pool of dollars that that's just waiting to be spent on on making everybody rich. And it's just not true.
1: Yeah, there's a great, reminds me, there was a great editorial, I think, in 1988 in The Nation, Ramesh pointed it out to me years ago, uh, endorsing Jesse Jackson for president, and yeah, so maybe it was 84, and, uh, and the, the gist of, there was a line in it that went something like, uh, I guess it was 88, uh, this country has, people say we can't afford this agenda, this country has enormous wealth, I mean, just look around and the, you know it's sort of like like Bill de Blasio's thing about how we have more than a month, enough money it's just in the wrong hands which if taken seriously means oh we're a banana republic and we're going to expropriate time, really. the wealth of, of various people yeah it's and it's amazing how these ideas sort of have the superficial plausibility to people and when in fact they are incredibly radical and dangerous things um and they're not based in reality but you are based in reality you are a great american you are the uh, budget guy for The Remnant, and we appreciate having you on. You told me you have a hard out in, in four minutes, so uh, I'm going to get you out of here with three minutes to spare. Uh, thank you, Brian Riedel. Always great to have you on. All right, so Brian has left the studio, and uh, I'm going to take a nap in a minute, um, And uh, um, but it's always good to have him on. I promise we'll be getting back to ukraine and, and and other weighty matters uh soon enough but i just we thought we had the obligation of due diligence to fulfill some um of our wonk quota um so it was great having them on and um i feel like there are other things i should make announcements about but i can't remember what they are uh but if you can um say nice things about this podcast wherever you in the ratings wherever you get podcasts and maybe give it some stars you know or or green clovers or whatever the lucky charms you prefer that would be great too and um that's all i got i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast